Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Manchester is Red podcast from the Manchester Evening News. I'm your host, Rich Fain. There might have been changes on the pitch, but I'm glad to say we've got our strongest lineup off it as well. Uh, Samuel Luckhurst, Tyrone, welcome to Thank today's you. episode. Thank you, Rich. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction, yes. You're very welcome. Yeah, we've gone for the, the strongest. Oh, Bruno Fernandes and Harry Maguire, you can choose which one of you do which you want. But uh, I guess we've got to got to start that last last game. Ten changes, maybe get into the the, mor- the morality, if you want to indulge some pundit sort of uh, criticism of the way United handled it. But, you know, three games in, in five days, United always going to make plenty of changes for that match at Old Trafford. You were both there. Ten changes, Samuel, and, you know, every week we say... Could this player play? Could that player play? And there's always that that call for rotation. You know, to use their squad depth to its fullest. They did just that, and they lost. Yes, I when I received the team four hours before kickoff from my usual source because it was the usual source. That was the only reason why I believed it could be genuine and accurate. But if you showed that to anyone on on the face of the planet who follows United, they'd have said there's no chance that will be the side tonight. If, if the competition was run, nobody would have ever predicted it. But that was that was the team. I don't think anybody expected that many changes. It was a bit of a quirk that Greenwood was the only one who kept his place from the Villa game, given how, how phenomenal he's been recently and how important he's become into United as well. But it was clear that Solskjaer was sanguine with the prospect of, of defeat. And if, if he does possess a vindictive streak, I, I suspect he might prefer to have Leicester in the Champions League next season than Liverpool as well. And of course, United are going to recall all their big hitters for the Liverpool game on Thursday. But this this was foisted upon him by the Premier League with a, a thankless schedule because of the, the postponement of, of the Liverpool game. How many days ago was it now? 10 days ago or something like that, I think. So he had little choice, but... But unfortunately for him, all that result to Leicester and the performance reiterated was that the the depth in the United squad, it's a case of quantity over quality. There are far too many players who are are not really good enough backup even. Um, And I suppose it's a little bit startling that the two main summer signings in terms of transfer fees have have been second rate. Again, it was pretty remarkable just looking at the list of all of those starters, apart from Greenwood and the two, the other two teenagers, Ahmad and, and Ilanga, to see where they last started in the league. You have, in the case of Juan Mata, it was November, Van der Beek, December. I think Alex Tellers hadn't had a kick in the league since January in that defeat to Sheffield United. And that was the case for Axel Tunzebi as well. So I think when that team came out, you pretty much knew that United would which is not going to win. And it was a case of whether they'd be able to make City wait a little longer to be crown champions. But Leicester thoroughly deserved the win. I think, but for that moment of brilliance from Greenwood, Leicester might have won quite comfortably because they did start so, so well. But Greenwood's goal took the wind out of their sails. And on the face of it, the result looked like it was quite a tight game. And I suppose it was a, a moral victory my, as, as Manchester City once said uh, when they lost to lost to games United that United actually only lost by a goal to Leicester, but it just confirmed the inevitable that City are champions. Yeah, exactly. It was the elephant in the room. We knew it for weeks. It's just how long United could delay it. And like you sort of touched upon there, Samuel, watching it myself, you know, the thing that maybe was disappointing was that it was the experienced players, the ones that you expect to perform well, who, who didn't really. And Ty, in terms of the, the 10 changes and the players who came in, any positivity, any players who did impress you? Well, of the ten that came in, obviously that takes out Greenwood, who was probably I can say United's best player. I mean, he took his goal brilliantly. Beyond that, it was hard for him to get in the game really because United had had so little of the of the territory. But 
he did take his goal brilliantly. But if the 10 that came in, I thought Matic did all right. And Ahmad was pretty, pretty impressive when, when he had the ball. There was one attempt to dribble out of his own area under pressure, which almost proved costly. But beyond that, you could see his confidence to dribble with the ball. Some, some decent strength on show, considering how diminutive he looks. Samuel made the point about how small he looks in daylight, which... Sounds an unusual thing to say, but you can kind of see where he's coming from. That you know, but when you put him in that massive stage, so many evening games, yeah, yeah, without without the floodlights, he did look tiny against some of those Leicester players. But you know, he showed he showed good strength and, and was quite impressive. Alanga just getting his debut was probably a, a positive. It, it was really hard for him to get in the game, and felt to me like he, he probably needs a loan spell next year to to play men's football. Um, but beyond those, I mean, that that was probably it. I don't think any of the back four covered themselves in glory, particularly Van der Beek. I don't know if we'll come on to our next or not, but he he didn't do enough again. I've got some sympathy with him in that I don't think United have used him particularly well this season. I was going um, to ask you specifically on that, really, Ty, because maybe this is a general point, but I think if we concentrate on Van der Beek now, sort of knows it that way. Do you have sympathy with the fact that Okay, he's played poorly when he's when he's played games, but he's usually playing in either dead rubber games, coming on with ten minutes to salvage a game, being put in a different position. Do you think there is sort of mitigation around how bad he's been? Yeah, slightly. I mean, Soska said last night that it, that team had never played together before, and when you make that many changes, it's very hard for any of those players to impress. If you bring one or two into a regular team, it's it's much easier for them than making all those changes. And if you look at Van der Beek, his last three starts were as an attacking midfielder in place of Fernandes at Leicester, on the left wing in Rome, and now in defensive midfield against Leicester again. And that's three starts in three different positions for a player who still hasn't really established himself at, at the club. And, you know, it's partly his fault that he hasn't established himself in any of those roles because he's not taken his chances. But it doesn't feel like you're giving him the best chance of, of seeing the best of him either when you are moving him around constantly. And Tosca spoke at the start of the season about how he's been schooled at Ajax and has got that versatility and he has played as a number six and an eight at Ajax. And Toscar has said since the EFL Cup game at Brighton in September that he thinks he can play on the left as well. But it does feel like he needs to be given a bit more security maybe in terms of a position and, and just a run before you start moving him around and, and playing him as, as jack of all trades. If you get him settled into the team, then you might see more of him in those positions. But at the moment, it feels slightly like he's fighting a, a losing battle. But we do know he's still got the quality to, to show. And I think... While he's not been helped by by the club and the way he's been managed, he's also partly to blame for that and that he's, he's not played well enough when he has had chances. I guess maybe now it's a good time to talk about the defence and Samuel, the entire back five really was second string last night, particularly with De Gea's you know, recent drop down to be second choice behind Dean Henderson. Did any of the defenders do anything to even suggest they're good enough to sort of be back up? Obviously, Bayer's got his new long-term contract, but you've got the likes of Tellers, Brandon Williams and Antoine Zabi. You can't see how, how any of them start games going forward. No, and I think, te- well, out of the ones who started last night, I'd say Tunzibi did reasonably well. He had a very, very edgy start, but he became more composed. And of, of the back four, I thought he was by, by far and away the best. But the mitigation there is that with Bayer getting a new contract and United being in in the market for a new centre-back in the summer, you would think, given Tunzibi's age, that this summer he has to consider his future at the very least. And I think he is doing that. Uh, whether it's a loan move or a permanent deal remains to be seen, but he is out of contract next year. And I know there's that plus one option, so it's effectively two years left in his contract. But for a player who's turning 24 this year and has played so little football for his parent club, it's it's maybe time for a fresh start elsewhere. 
which I still think would be a shame. I, I've, I've said before, I don't think Bayer should have got a new contract. I think it was um, it was weak of United to do that, but this is what they do. They seem fixated on maintaining, you know, kind of like and getting the assets up on a balance sheet rather than just looking at a player and deciding that he's had five years, he's played 100 games, he's a permacroc. When there's no sign of danger, he gets into danger. He's just too much of a liability and we need to get rid this summer. But they were caught between a rock and a hard place because clearly, ideally, they wouldn't have given him a new contract and they wouldn't have sold him this summer just because of the state's playing defence. But in the end, they've given him a new contract. So you'd think Bayer is pretty safe, even though... There's, there's precedent for players signing a contract and then being sold quite swiftly afterwards. I think Andy Carroll signed a new contract in November for Newcastle and two months later, Liverpool signed him for £35 million. So if there's a club that's daft enough to pay a daft mm. a player so shortly after they've signed a contract, then there's no reason why they won't be sold. But I don't think that's going to be happening with buy. So unfortunately, again, as I said, it's with, with that squad depth, and that's another difference between United and City. City's squad depth is so much is so much better. And it's pretty telling that City's top scorer this season has been Gundogan, who has got 16 goals. United's top scorer is Fernandes on 27. Rashford has broken the 20-goal barrier as well. But with City this season, it's felt more of a collective effort from them in winning the title, whereas in previous seasons, there has been a major standout forward. There's been a standout player at City this season, that's been Diaz, but their title win this season has been underpinned by how solid and robust they've been in defence. It's been a much more collective effort, I think, in in attack, whereas with United, they don't really have that. Cavani and Greenwood have have really caught fire in, in the last two or three months of the season, but you need that over over a full season, or in City's case, I suppose, half a season, because the first half of the season, it seemed like the leadership was changing hands between about four or five different clubs. Nobody was a challenger. Everyone was a pretender. But as soon as City got to the summit, it seemed that that you know something felt different about that, and so United. It was it was quite reassuring, I think, for United fans that Solskjaer sounded so bullish in defeat and talked about the need for maybe one or two more signings to come in. The preference is for a minimum three signings per summer, but I think they will need a minimum four if they're to have a squad that's actually going to credibly challenge for the league next season. Yeah, I think, like you said, the United still have that core, don't they? Rashford, Maguire and, and Fernandes. And when they're not playing goal on the, on the same pitch, you do sense that United have lost that, that leadership. Ty, it was interesting as well. I mean, there's a lot of maybe credit and giving to Leicester because, you know, they still have come a long way and, you know, they're always going to be a team who sort of polarise opinion on how good they actually are. And they're playing a second string United side, so you can't be too maybe optimistic about them. But their midfield, Tillmans and then Diddy, and then on the other side, you've got United to have Matic. You said Matic played well, but do you think that the way that Leicester sort of dictated the play sort of pushed the case for a new defensive midfielder as well? Yeah, quite possibly. Um, I mean, and Didi and Tillmans, I think, would both would both be an upgrade on Matic and Van der Beek and they'd perhaps be an upgrade on on at least one of Fred and McTominay as well, arguably. So I think there's still room to improve in that midfield. It feels like United are kind of hamstrung with, with Matic at the moment. I mean, he, he does offer some a senior voice and some leadership in what is still a pretty young squad and a squad that hasn't really got much experience of, of winning stuff at the moment. That might change in two weeks, of course. So... He is valuable there, but I think everyone was surprised when he signed a three-year contract last year is 
as good as he was when we came out of lockdown, it, it felt like it didn't take much to earn a very long contract for a player who was 31, I think, at the time. Um, I think that's still got two years left to run. So it does feel like unless he unless he goes to Inter Milan or Roma, there's you know there's probably going to be nowhere else he, he goes at the moment. And I'm not sure United will be looking to sell him, but I do think there's an argument still to improve midfield. I think McTominay's maybe not a starter every week, but I think he's the type of player that every title-winning United squad is not built around, but every title-winning United squad contains a player like McTominay who you know you can rely on to to come in and do a job, whether he's starting or whether he's pressed into service. You know, Fred's improved greatly, but I'm still, I'm still not entirely convinced by him, to be honest. And like we say, the backup is probably not not quite good enough with, with Van der Beek not establishing him there. So I do think that's an issue. The problem with United is it, it's probably further down the, the list of priorities in, in what they want to do. And we know it's going to be a summer where they can't do everything. So they might have to, to wait in midfield terms, I guess. But yeah, I think there's certainly an argument to, to sign a new defensive midfielder. And I think the fact they were so comprehensively outschooled by Ndidi and Tielemans probably shows that those two are clearly better players at the moment than Matic and Van der Beek in, in Premier League terms. Yeah, of course. We'll maybe get onto some of the transfer priorities later on in the podcast. But Sam, that probably brings us nicely onto you. You've done the piece today as well about Jaden Sancho's future, pushing for for a move ahead of the summer window. What's United's sort of what what is the sort of state of play in terms of uh, the sort of wide men ahead of the summer? Because of course, last night we've seen the future in Ahmad and Alanga. Okay, maybe Ahmad is, is further down the sort of development line in Alanga. But if someone like Sancho was to come in, you know, we're not saying it is going to. What does that mean for Ahmad's future as well? I think if you mention Sancho to any of the officials at United, it, it unnerves them as much as a leaky roof at Old Trafford, as we, we saw last night. Um, one of our colleagues got, got a, a, an apology because his, his laptop was soiled. Um, but essentially, it, it is that they've. if Sancho is available and he's available for a reasonable price, then they'll go for him. It's, it's the same with pretty much any footballer in the world of any great repute. They... They can't refuse to rule out signing him because of the talent, because of the history they have in terms of tracking the player, the interest last year. He would still enhance that squad. He would still enhance that starting eleven. you'd think, as well. And where Cavani has now signed a contract, they've got the leverage now to go for a more creative forward rather than a goal scorer. I mean, it's pretty important that they have someone who's going to provide service for Cavani on a regular basis. I think Fernandes is capable of doing that, but of course he's not a winger. And you do want to utilise that that aerial threat that Cavani possesses. I mean, Greenwood and Rashford have done it to brilliant effect in recent weeks with a couple of crosses against Tottenham and, and Villa. But neither of them are out-and-out wingers, even though they primarily operate from the wing for United. Whereas Sancho is... He's, you know, he's an old-fashioned winger. He's a modern winger. He, you, you can use him however way you want. He wanted to leave Dortmund last year. Uh, he still wants to leave Dortmund. He was very disappointed that it didn't happen last year. I think it, it certainly when that United qualified for the Champions League, I think everybody thought that that deal would go through. Dortmund are clearly more amenable to selling Sancho this year because there's a pandemic. Uh, so they need to possibly sell a big player. I suppose there's some minor mitigation that Dortmund are now back in the Champions League places in the Bundesliga with two games to play. It looked like a tall order for them a few weeks ago, but you would probably think they're on course to qualify now, which certainly gives them gives them more bargaining power when it comes to dealing with clubs who might want to sign Sancho. And of course, I think the priority for them is 
this year is keeping Haaland for another year, whereas last year the priority was keeping Sancho for another year, even though that Haaland release clause for 75 million euros is is activated, becomes active in, in 2022. But Sancho, from what I've been told, is you know, the, the agent is a bit under pressure there because he failed to deliver last year. I mean, it was quite unusual the way United tried to negotiate that whole deal and that they dealt with Abassi, Amika Abassi, who's Jane Sancho's agent. And he was also kind of communicating Borussia Dortmund's demands. But United never actually got into a position where they were dealing with Hans-Joachim Watzke, who's the Dortmund chief executive, or Michael Zork, uh, the Dortmund sporting director. So a fee was never actually discussed. And I suppose that was part, partly because Dortmund had made it known that they wanted, I think it was 120 million euros, so 108 million pounds at the time. But from what I was told, again, that those talks about possibly signing Sancho ended about three weeks before the window closed. So it was a pretty tedious saga and a lot of United fans became quite hopeful of it happening, but it was never really remotely close to happening. I think the last word from United was that they'd made, I think Ty did the story, that they'd made progress on agents' fees and then it just went cold and it was dead and nothing else came of it. And things changed so quickly. I mean, you've seen Jonathan Barnett come out this week and uh, say that Jack Grealish isn't on United's agenda this summer, which has been it's not been a secret. That's been known for quite some time. I think if the pandemic hadn't have happened last year, then Villa probably would have got relegated and United probably would have signed Grealish. As it turns out, I think if he's going to go to Manchester this summer, he'll probably go to City. But that remains to be seen. So there's, you know, United have got a very good chance of signing Sancho. I'd say they've got a better chance of signing him this year than than last year. They've got a better squad. Uh, they've had a better finish in the Premier League. They might win something as well. They're on the up. Dortmund are probably in a weaker position than they were last year, particularly if they don't qualify for the Champions League. It's just a case of how much do United want him and whether they can actually negotiate it. These these things take a, a very, very long-winded, as, as we well know. So I would say it would be interesting to see how it pans out, but it really doesn't interest me, the whole James Sanchez saga. It, I'm bored to the back teeth of it after last summer. If they can get it over and done with as soon as possible, I think we'll all be grateful for that. Um, and I suppose the other bonus with Sancho is that, unlike last year, I wouldn't say that he's a budget-busting a budget busting signing because Dortmund are not going to get nine figures for him this summer. I think there's every chance that United, if they really wanted to, they could finance two two moves for two two marquee names, if you like, without actually selling anyone. And then if they do sell successfully, which has proved problematic for them in the past, then they might have money left over or or certainly the leverage to go out there and, and get a, another major signing because I think they do need three key three key signings to come in and go straight into that first team, which wasn't what happened last year. The, the five signings they made, none of them were first-team ready players. Cavani has become eventually, but Van der Beek hasn't been, Tellers hasn't been, and of course Palestri and, and Ahmad were, were signed as potential players anyway. Yeah, exactly. And like you said there, Samuel, the Haaland's the elephant in the room as well. You've got Harry Kane as well, loitering. It means next summer as well, there's always going to be sort of one eye cast ahead. And usually we want transfer sagas to sort of drag out, so what more to write about. But like you said, Jaden Sancho, let's have it over and done with now. Either yes or no. Another deadline from Dortmund would be great. But Ty, we mentioned the striker situation there. And of course, the other news to, to sort of report on is that Samuel said that Cavani has signed his contract extension for another year. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because Obviously, he's a quality player. He's the best number nine United. Keeping him is great news, but he's still a player who's only available to play maybe one game a week. Do you think that that is enough 
for a year. I mean, we keep on saying that next summer United could then go big and get a proven world-class number nine. But does, is United strike force now, if they even were to supplement it with another winger, do you think that would be enough for another season? I think as long as Cavani stays fit, it would probably be all right. You're going to have Martial returning as well. And I know he's not, I know he's not flavour of the month at the moment, but I think he can still fulfil that role against some teams in the Premier League and probably some teams United will face in the Champions League group stage. And I think Cavani will probably be available for more games next year when the schedule isn't as demanding. I think Solskjaer's always said he wants to he wants to train hard before he plays hard. And the reality is United have barely had a hard training session all season because they go from game to recovery to preparation day doing set pieces and then a game. So there's not been many days where United can train at full pelt, which is, if that's what Cavani wants, then it probably feels like what he's missing. Next year, even if they're in their Champions League, there'll be less midweek games. Even if they're playing on a Saturday and then a Wednesday, say, you've still got you know a couple of sessions in there that will be harder than the sessions they've had this year, simply because the, the schedule won't be as, as stretched. There'll be an extra month in the season. So I think they'll probably get more out of him. Um, I mean, he's in... He's in the best form of his United career. And I know it's a, a brief career, but he's been absolutely phenomenal for the last six weeks or so now, two months. Um, he, he's 34, but he still looks about 24. And the energy uh, with which he presses and the vibrancy has been incredibly impressive. And I think you know, I think Solskjaer deserves credit for the way he has managed him, really, and, and, and convinced him and talked him into staying. You know, it was no secret that he was... He, he didn't enjoy a greater Manchester winter in, in lockdown and he's certainly not alone there. We can't all return to South America and, and swap Manchester for South America. Cavani had that option. You can understand why he was tempted with it. And I think, you know, Soscar has, has convinced him that this is a team in going in the right direction and that he shouldn't he shouldn't depart this club without um, a year playing in front of fans at, at Old Trafford. We've seen how big a hit he is in, in social media and how big his song is on, on social media. So... You know, he's become a real sort of cult hero without any United fans actually laying eyes on him in the flesh. So I think he's, you know, I think it's it, it's a great news for United that he's going to stay. It's a risk that they'll have someone who turns 35 during the season leading the line. And, and the only cover is someone who wasn't convinced this year. But I think given his, his fitness record, I think it would be good enough for United. And if he can continue playing as he has done, then he's going to add 15, 20 goals to this team, you'd think, next season. Yeah, exactly. It's got to be exciting to watch. And like you said, when he has a packed Old Trafford, hopefully that should spur him on to even better things. Who knows? Uh, Samuel, I hope you're not too fatigued yourself. Another game on the horizon. Liverpool at home. You were both at Old Trafford for the last game. Increased security measures ahead of the match and there's more planned fans protests as well ahead of the Liverpool game. What's the latest on that? Well, an anonymous fans group have called on called for 10,000 fans to gather outside Old Trafford. I, I Highly doubt there'll be that many there for an 8.15pm kickoff, particularly given the barricades that have been erected outside Old Trafford. I think one of the fans on Twitter the other day had walked down there and took a video of it and said it was like Gaza. Some colleagues decided to walk around and have a look themselves yesterday. And I mean, it, it's it's been done, obviously, as a deterrent. They, they've clearly reinforced it. They've had to reinforce it. There are extra, there's extra security at Carrington as well, I'm led to believe. Uh, certainly for us driving into the stadium yesterday, the police presence, it was, there was probably more police at Old Trafford yesterday than there is an episode of Line of Duty. There were about six police vans just loitering around the entrance on John Gilbert Way. The two coaches, the two United coaches, when they came in, they were followed in by two police vans as well. So there was there was immense presence there yesterday, even though there were no planned protests whatsoever. 
I think obviously they can. It was a case of they had to be better safe than sorry there, but it's all on this Liverpool game on on Thursday, and it will be it will be intri- intriguing to see what what happens for for a number of reasons. Whether the the supporters are successful, whether they manage to get the game postponed. You know, I think they're doing an awful lot of due diligence from what I hear in terms of trying to effectively this this militant set of supporters to try and get the game postponed again because they feel emboldened and empowered by what happened earlier this month when the, the Sunday game was postponed. So, yeah, it, it could be a long night, I think, for all of us concerned. I look forward to that shift. Uh, it's good to see. <laughs> yeah, who, who, who knows what's going to happen. But Ty, I guess I'm not sure whether to play devil's advocate or not. But obviously, since the, the last game, there's been you know the statement from Joel Glazer, there's been an open letter in response to the, the supporters' trust saying that they want to sort of try to build these bridges that haven't existed for 16 years and regain that trust that that never existed. Quite frankly, do you think that to play devil's advocate, I'm not saying this is what I believe. Do you think that they the there is almost an argument to say that fans should wait and see what happens before they protest again? Or do you think it is very much that you've got to strike while that iron's hot? You've already made such a statement when the first game was postponed. Do you think it is a case of just continuing with that? I suppose it depends on what outcome you want, really. I would think the the must element and the supporters' trust element would be saying, we've got we've got Joel Glazer to the table. All right, it's only words, and he's, he's proven before words can be hollow, but... Let's give him a chance to deliver actions. And, of course, must demands weren't that the Glazers sell the club and, you know, rid themselves of, of ever having been associated with Manchester United. Their demands were probably what you say are more realistic in terms of shares for supporters, investments in Old Trafford, changes to voting rights and, and things like that. So certainly if you're going down that route, there's an element that you say, we've got them to the table Let's see what what comes of it now. Um, the more militant faction probably don't care about voting rights and shares at the moment. They just want them gone. And for them, the best action to get rid of them is to keep getting games postponed and, and show them that they're simply not welcome here. So it depends. It depends what you want, I guess. You can certainly sympathise with fans who who want the Glazers gone and and want them rid. So if they're if they're going to protest tomorrow, if they try and get the game called off again tomorrow, you, you can understand that. The, you know, the Glazers have done a lot of harm to, to this club and a lot of harm to the supporters of this club. So you can entirely understand it. I think, trying to look at it dispassionately, there's probably an argument that before they sell, it's almost safer for United fans to have shares in the hands of supporters and some kind of fail safe. Because we've said previously, if, you know, if they were to sell this summer, they're not they're not likely to sell to a Manchester philanthropist. It's it's going to be to another 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 you know a private equity firm who are only interested again in profits, or to Saudi Arabia who who would stain the name of, of Manchester United. So I think it's dispassionately there's probably an argument to say that before before you try and force them out, it's best to try and get some kind of supporter representation just so the supporters can get back to having some say in how this football club has been run. So you can understand both both sides of the argument. Which is the best the best I can do for, for fence sitting after being past that hot potato. Thanks, Rich. Yeah, there's a lot more fences to sit on now. So uh, that's that investment <laughs> at Old Trafford. But uh, who, who knows? Um, I guess maybe to talk about the football now, Samuel, no one really cares what's happening in the match, do they? I mean, I love the argument on, online that some, some Liverpool fans were saying that United had, co- had cost them their place in the Champions League by rotating against uh, Leicester on Tuesday night, forgetting that Liverpool had already dropped home, dropped points at home to Brighton, Burnley, Fulham, Newcastle, West Brom. But it was United playing, making 10 changes against Leicester, which cost them the Champions League. It's got to be a fierce encounter. United will play a strong side. What are you expecting from the match? Do you, do you think it will be a bit of a non, non-event, given that there's more interest off the pitch ahead of kickoff? 
Not necessarily. With, with something still to play for for Liverpool in terms of you know that outside chance they have of still getting into the top four, they've they've got to go for it. They've got to try and win that game. United are clearly going to bring bring their big hitters back in, so it, it could actually be one of those rare occasions of a United Liverpool league game that's watchable because this is a fixture that is absolutely infamous for serving up dross on an annual basis. It is always hyped up almost always usually hyped up to high heaven by Sky Sports and it just sets us up for a fall. Uh, I've lost count of the amount of nil-nils we've had in, in recent years. Uh, when, when was the last truly great game between the clubs? It's, it's you know, the, the, the nostalgic in me would point to the, the March 2015 game when Matters scored twice, Gerard got sent off and fans were holding Balotelli back from getting involved with Chris Smalling. But that wasn't because of the quality of it, it was just because an awful lot of there was, there was so much instance in that in that match and so much going on, but it wasn't really you know a classic humding like the three three and in the ninety three ninety four season. And you might have to go all the way back to that for the last truly cracking match between them. But the the cup game in January showed that there's there's potential for a, a pretty good encounter. So provided the game goes ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that this might actually be a watchable United Liverpool game because, as I said earlier, we've been we've pinned our hopes on it being a pretty a pretty good watch so often, but it's always you know it's it's always been pretty reliable in failing to serve up anything that is is remotely watchable. Yes, the, the good thing is expectations are now so low that it'd be hard to be disappointed. So who knows what to expect coming ahead? Time in terms of the, the team selection. Do I dare ask you? I mean, we had ten change on Tuesday night. I did my panel, I was saying maybe another 10 changes. Mm. You know, Eric Bay maybe the only survivor, at least one of the centre-backs because Harry Maguire would be playing. Your, your selection, what type of team would you go for? Exactly the same as what you've just said, 10 changes with Bay staying in. I think it. the selection we saw last night makes it very easy to predict that Liverpool team. Greenwood started all three in the last week, so he's he's not going to start. Bailly will have to start because of that shortage of centre-backs, so... I think it's it's very easy to predict, and I think that'll be that'll be the United the United team, and it will be back to the strongest team. And you know, maybe the events of of Tuesday night will actually increase the excitement within the game, as as Samuel said, because it's made it now that Liverpool have to go to Old Trafford and and try and get a win. There might be some feeling of anger within the Liverpool camp at, at the way events have have panned out, as you said, Rich. They've you know the fact they're not in the top four is is entirely their fault, but I guess they're going to feel bruised that. Leicester have had an easier ride at Old Trafford because of these rearranged games. Solskjaer was hamstrung and could do nothing about it. But Liverpool's argument, I suppose, would be that you know they they didn't get that game called off ten days ago, eleven days ago, whenever it was. So that might fire up the the Liverpool players and bring a bit of bit of an edge to a game that without it was perhaps lacking an edge. So that might, as long as it kicks off before midnight and then the players aren't knackered, then. <laughs> It might make it a more sort of a more a more edgy and, and touchy game than it has been in recent years. Yeah, it could set the record for the latest ever kickoff Premier League game. <laughs> I don't know what to expect really. I guess who knows? But uh, Samuel Ty, have you want to make a prediction, or we're just going to leave it very open ended? Uh, provided the game goes ahead, I suppose. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, that could, that could be the first prediction. Do you think it could be the kickoff yeah. time. Will, 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 will the kickoff will there time be a match? I think there will be because the, I think the police presence might be a bit overwhelming. I think they might have more license to be uh, just just to be more robust with any any supporters who try to um, who try to uh, you know interfere, who try to disrupt disrupt the game. Hopefully, 
you know, they're, they're done the violence. I mean, there, there wasn't a great deal of violence during the protests the other week, but hopefully there's there's none on, on Thursday night. As for the match, I, I, I am going to be quite optimistic and say a 2-2 draw, a watchable 2-2 draw. Ty, yourself? I think a United win. Again, I think it might be a reasonably watchable game. So let's go for another another 3-2 like the FA Cup game. Really? I, I think I'd go confident United win. Like 3-0 mm. or something. But um, <laughs> 3-0? Ask me, ask me again after the game. You know, new optimism. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? United are probably sure the second place. But thank you very much, Ty Samuel, for joining us this week on the Manchester Red Podcast. Thank That's you. It. Thanks, Rich. Please don't mention our predictions to us after the event's taken place. We we do put our neck on the line doing these, so uh, thank you very much if you have listened. And <laughs> you especially. Yeah, well, you got to, haven't you? You've got to be optimistic this time of year. Thank you very much once again for listening. As always, please do leave a like, subscribe if you haven't already, and we'll see you again next time.